a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you here today. Uh, my name's Dan, and I'm the pastor here at Cornerstone. And uh, as a church, we're on a journey, and that journey is to well, it's it's a no grow show journey, and uh, through. Um, through our community, through our grow groups, through our sermons, through our life, what we're trying to do is to figure out together how to know Jesus, how to grow in, in him and show him to others. That's what we are all about. And it's uh, awesome to see you here today. One of the craziest charges that's laid against the international movement of Jesus followers, that is people who are Christians, is that they are at their best when they are mild-mannered and inoffensive. A bit like Ned Flanders, you know. A little bit odd, but ultimately harmless. When they just quietly get on with their own lives and leave well enough alone, then that's when Christians shine. But 
We just have to look back through the centuries and we see that this is simply not true. We think about a lady called Harriet Tubman who not only escaped slavery herself, but then made 13 rescue missions to save about 70 people via the Underground Railroad. Why did she do this? Because Jesus saved her. She was following in her master's footsteps, her reasoning, these are her words, I was free, they should be free. This is what she said. Harriet Tubman was a rebel. What about Wilfred Grenfell, who sailed his own steamboat along Labrador's frozen coastline, and if you've ever been to Labrador, you might know what that's like. I never have, but I've read about this man. And he served as a missionary doctor to deep sea fishermen that had no medical service. And he reached out to isolated villages in Labrador that had no medical service. He chose to leave a comfortable life in order, in his words, to serve the brother for whom Christ died. Wilfred Wilfred Grenville was a rebel. What about Elka of the Waiwai tribe in the Amazon? After Jesus transformed this former witch doctor's life, he was determined, and get this, to be Christ's witch doctor. And he not only brought Jesus to his own tribe, but he also became a cross-cultural missionary, leading his own people to tribes that they were afraid of without any hope of return. Elka of the Waiwai was a rebel. What about Mabel Francis, a missionary over to Japan, who refused to be evacuated after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And if you can imagine what the national feeling was towards foreigners after Pearl Harbor, but she said, no, I will not leave. She was then placed under house arrest where she carried on with her ministry at the end of the war. In total, she served in Japan for 56 years and with her brother planted 20 churches and received the nation's highest civilian award from the emperor in 1962 for her sacrifice for, quote, the Japanese people in their distress and confusion at the time of their defeat, end quote. She was known as the American lady on a bicycle who was always smiling. She was a rebel. What about Moses? By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to uh, enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for for the sake of Christ. Understand this. Listen to this. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses was a rebel. What about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped, grabbed. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus was a rebel. He rebelled against what was rightfully his and instead made himself nothing. He was a king who became a servant. And is this not rebellion? 
Rebellion of the most wonderful kind, a rebellion against his own inalienable rights and privileges. And what was at the root of Jesus' rebellion against his own rights? Well, we find out in verse eight. And being, in, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' rebellion sprung from obedience. Obedience to a higher call, to a glorious vision. Harriet Tubman, Wilfred Granville, Elka of the YY, Mabel Francis, Moses, Jesus. These people were all rebels, rebels against their own rights and their privilege. Those things that they had every right to say, that is mine. Rebels against the expectations of society. They were rebels because they'd heard God's voice and they were compelled, not forced, but they were compelled to obey They were stirred in their soul. They chose to have their voices sing as part of a greater choir. They wanted their lives to count. They wanted their lives to mean something. And Jesus calls us to be obedient rebels. Let me say it again. One of the craziest uh, charges against Christians is that we are or we should be mild-mannered and inoffensive. In fact, I find that assumption to be offensive in the extreme. You know, the fact is that God calls us to walk in Jesus's footsteps as obedient rebels, obedient to him, and rebelling against sin, selfishness, and society's small thinking. Because like it or not, God's kingdom comes into conflict with humanity's kingdom over and over and over again. And if you don't believe that, if you believe that these two kingdoms can coexist, then that's because you've adapted too much. That's because you've been assimilated. That's because you've become too much like the world. Your salt has become tasteless. You're hiding your light under a basket. You adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God, James 4.4. Let me show you what an obedient rebel looks like. An obedient rebel endures three things, being forgotten, being insulted, and being forsaken. And because an obedient rebel has learned to endure these things through going through these things, he or she can then minister to a world um, in which there are those who who, who are forgotten, who are insulted, and who are forsaken. Because if you've never experienced these three things, And if you've never experienced God's faithfulness through these things, then how can you minister to people who are currently enduring them? Wilfred Grenville wasn't looking to plant a megachurch. He deliberately chose to become forgotten to minister to the forgotten, tiny little fishing villages of Labrador. Mabel Francis chose to be insulted after staying behind in a war... uh, 
in a war situation for the good of the people she was called to minister to. She was then placed under house arrest by the people she'd stayed to help. Can you imagine? Then even after this, she turned her home slash prison into a small hospital and cared for the sick and the needy who came to her. And what about Christ? For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Romans 15 verse verse three. The, The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. The life of the obedient rebel is to be forgotten, insulted, and forsaken. What we find in our passage today is that Mark treats the most important moment in all of human history in such an abrupt way that I find it almost offensive. I say almost because this is the inspired word of God and God obviously has a plan for the way that he wrote it down. But in verse 24 of chapter 15, a measly four words Mark gives to this moment of horror. And they crucified him. Jesus was unable to carry the cross from the Praetorium to Golgotha, this place of the skull. Writers say that, that, that the walk from Jesus being condemned in the Praetorium to being crucified at Golgotha was at most 650 meters. It might have been as little as 300 meters. And to put that in perspective, Mulligan's is about 400 meters away from here if you go down that street. And the United Church is 600 meters away along that street too, James Craig. So it wasn't very far. Jesus didn't have to go very far. It wasn't the kilometers like I've always imagined. But he was so weak from torture and blood loss that he couldn't even do that. The God who holds all things together, Colossians 1 verse 17, couldn't even carry a cross beam 600 meters. He then refused a wine slash myrrh chaser that would have taken away the edge of the pain that was heading his way. And then these four words come, and they crucified him. And they forgot him. The soldiers who did this unspeakable act then flick the TV to another channel. They, they start gambling for his clothes. All in a day's work, I guess. On to the next thing. Jesus no longer existed for them. What else is on the TV? This obedient rebel was forgotten by the very people whose names he'd remembered. He was ignored by those whose sinful charges he had etched in his psyche because he was about to pay for every single one of those sins. He remembered them, but they forgot him. And I wonder how many times have you done exactly the same thing? You know that God is speaking to you. You know that he's got a hold of you. He's trying to get your attention. And so you distract yourself until you've forgotten, thinking that you're not held accountable for that which you don't remember. But that doesn't really work, right? You're always responsible for whatever you overlook. Just ask any husband who's forgotten his wife's 
birthday. You're always responsible for what you overlook. But somehow we think that God is maybe different. You see, outside of our sin being covered by Jesus, God will remember every sin, every insult, every offense, and he will one day hold us accountable for every single sinful act. Because it's only in Jesus that Hebrews 8 verse 12 becomes our reality. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. That's the truth in Christ. For us, Jesus the obedient rebel was forgotten. Now I don't know if I'd rather be forgotten or insulted. Would you rather that someone totally forgot you, or would you rather bear the brunt of someone's insult? I wonder. Well, Jesus didn't get a choice. He got both in full measure. After being ignored by the soldiers, Jesus then receives the uh, insults of three separate groups. It's the passers-by, in verse 29, the Sanhedrin in verse 31, and the rebels who were crucified along with him in verse 32. Each of these is offensive in the extreme. Here's why. First of all, let's look at the passers-by. They were on their way to Starbucks to meet a friend. They had an engagement. They didn't have enough time to stop and truly enjoy you know, the glories of the crucifixion. They didn't have time to give Jesus much time, but they did have time to stop and hurl insults at Jesus, shake their heads in a shameful, you know, fake sham of shock and horror, and they had enough time to challenge him to come down. And I guess it's the casual contempt that we see here that really gets me. They, they don't have time to stop and be in the moment, um, but they can make the time for a cheaper side or a snide remark. They're too lazy to truly engage. Uh, and then after insulting him, they carry on their own merry little way and uh, get their frappe mochaccino. For them, Jesus is not even yesterday's news. He's the previous minute's news. Other things now have their attention. Secondly, the Sanhedrin. Now, no one is surprised, at least I hope if you've been journeying with us through the book of Mark, I hope you're not surprised that the Sanhedrin are there having a little bit of a dig like they usually do. After all, they've been at loggerheads with Jesus since the start of his ministry, and finally they get what they want. This troublemaker is out of the way, and he's not just out of the way, but he's out of the way in the most shameful public way that he can be out of the way. And I'm not surprised that they insinuated themselves with that crowd, but I do hate the fact that they didn't even have the courage to openly insult Jesus. They couldn't even scorn Jesus with integrity to his face. Verse 31 instead tells us that they mocked him among themselves. You know, a little comment here, a little comment there, but nothing out loud. And then the last group who insulted Jesus, well, frankly, they should have known better. They were the rebels either side of Jesus on the cross. As fellow crucifixes, they should have empathized with Jesus and not mocked him. 
But this just gives us an insight into our sinful nature. No matter how far we fall in life, there's always someone that we can perceive as being below us who can bear the brunt of our judgment and scathing remarks. At least I'm not as bad as that person, we, we say to ourselves. And in fact, this is exactly how, how abusive relationships can continue because either the, the abuser says, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or the victim can say, at least he or she isn't as bad as so-and-so, and so the, the cycle of abuse can, can continue. And also think about the, those sins that uh, we allow to grip us, to cohabit with us, and to control us. How, how can we allow these sins to continue? Because we rationalize them with phrases like, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least I'm not like them. At least I haven't sunk that far. And it's this very thinking that gave the rebels either side of Jesus the platform to mock him. Just think about it. Jesus here was the whipping boy, both literally and metaphorically. He was, he was the one who the crucified rebels felt safe in deflecting their own failure towards. Yes, they were crucified, but at least they weren't as pathetic as this so-called king of the Jews. At least they've not sunk that low. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him, Mark 15, 32. The very son of the blessed one at whose feet every knee will one day bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord was the object of mockery from the refuse of society. The highest of the high was ridiculed by the lowest of the low. The very image of of the invisible God is slapped in the face by the lazy and the cowardly and the hypocrites. And so Jesus has been forgotten by like, like yesterday's news and he's been insulted like he's a scumbag. And it gets worse. Of course it gets worse. He's also forsaken. Listen to his cry in verse 34. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, it's not just the callously indifferent soldiers or the intentionally hurtful mockers. Now God is getting in on the action himself. Like some hideous manifestation of what's going on in Jesus' very soul, the, the darkness covers the land in verse 33. At noon, when the sun should have been the brightest, it's like the sun has ceased to exist. Quote, The cry was not one of physical pain, psychological confusion, or dread of death. No, It was the cry of the Son of God who was now experiencing something he had never known in all of eternity, separation from and forsakenness by God, end quote. Daniel Aiken. Quote, this forsakenness, this loss was between the Father and the Son who had loved each other from all eternity. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Jesus was being cut out of the dance. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Why? Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a rhetorical question, but the answer is for you and for me. 
Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on on us instead fell on Jesus. That's a long quote, but that's the end, and that's by Tim Keller. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. Now, we can never know what went on in that moment in its fullness, and thank God that we will never know what that was, but, but, but this moment, that moment where Jesus said that, that is the crux of time. That's the fulcrum around which all of eternity moves, revolves. And so when faced with this level of sacrifice, anything else has to be pushed over to the side. Our desires and our dreams and our plans, not important. Our selfish wants, our lusts, and our rebellious pursuits, not important. All that matters is that it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Stuart Townend. And not only was Jesus forgotten, insulted, and forsaken, he was also willing Praise be to God that Jesus was willing. You see, Simon of, 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 of Cyrene had to be press-ganged into carrying the cross, verse 21, but Jesus did all of this willingly. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, Hebrews 12, verse 2. At youth on Wednesday, uh, Wendy asked this, what was that joy that was set before Jesus? What was it that gave him the courage and the strength to withstand the horrors of the cross? What, what, what was this joy? It was you. It was you. You are the joy before Jesus. Isn't that incredible that the thing that kept him going, the thing that reassured him that what he, what he was doing wasn't a fool's errand, was the possibility that one day you might take him up on his offer of forgiveness and eternal friendship with God and eternal brotherhood or sisterhood with Jesus. That's amazing. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus cried in verse 37, but it was probably, it is finished. That, that moment that had caused him to sweat blood out of his pores due to fear, and he had that hor- horrific sick-to-stomach anticipation, that moment had now passed. He'd drunk that cup of suffering every single drop, and it was over. He'd faced his greatest dread and fear, and he'd overcome. It is finished. And so that we're not left in any doubt as to what happened, God ripped a curtain. That curtain that separates you and me, we who forget and insult Jesus like it's an Olympic sport, this curtain that separates us from a perfect God who cannot even look on sin is now officially ripped in two from the top down to the bottom by the very hand of God himself, that that barrier between God and us has now vaporized. And he did it. He willingly smashed through the barrier that separates us from him. 
And so any objections that you may have saying nonsense like you're not worthy or you aren't good enough or you keep sinning, any nonsense like that now fades into silence because of what happened here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death because what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering and he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. In us, Romans 8, 1 to 4. Now we, we wonder what it would have been like to be there at the foot of the cross. We think that if we were given the chance to see Jesus die, that our faith would be so strong and our convictions would be unshakable. Probably not. Because those who were there, those who should have known better, the fellow criminals and the religious experts, they were clueless. They, they missed it. Most likely, we would have been too busy to pay him any mind, like the soldiers, or we'd have been caught up in this mob mentality of, of mockery like the crowd and the Sanhedrin. But there were some there who chose not to forget him, who instead remembered him, First of all, we see the women in verse 40 who are watching from a distance. Where are the guys? They're not there, but the women are there watching. These women who had been following Jesus since, since Galilee, caring for his needs, his entourage, his groupies, they were there. Verse 41. And the other exception was a Gentile pig of a Roman centurion. Verse 39 who gave Jesus his full attention. While the other soldiers' eyes were on the game of bingo in front of them, this soldier, it says, stood there in front of Jesus. Can you picture that in your mind? He was transfixed. He couldn't take his eyes off of what he saw in front of him. He studied Jesus in rapt attention as Jesus breathed his last. And when this unnamed soldier saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. There was something about the way that Jesus died that caused him to say this man was the son of God. He saw something at that moment of Jesus' death. He saw Jesus obey. He saw Jesus obey to the very last breath. He saw Jesus obey so that his obedience becomes our obedience, and he saw Jesus rebel. He saw Jesus rebel to the final beat of his heart. He, he saw Jesus rebel so that Jesus' rebel spirit can become our rebel spirit. These women remembered him. They were obedient rebels. This centurion noticed him. He was an obedient rebel. Two classes of people who were either dismissed or resented by the rank-and-file Jew Jew of the time, and yet these were the people who got it right. They rebelled against the wave of public opinion and instead chose obedience to a greater standard, the revelation of God himself. These were obedient rebels worshiping the original obedient rebel. 
And since that moment, throughout history, ordinary people like you and me, after encountering Jesus at the cross, have been transformed into obedient rebels. They've chosen to be forgotten by the world, to endure the insults of a faithless society, and to be forsaken by those closest to them. Harriet Tubman, Wilfred Grenville, Elka of the YY, Mabel Francis, these women, that's centurion. These are people of whom the world was not worthy, Hebrews 11:39. They were, this world was not worthy of them. Why is this? Why did they choose this? Because through Jesus, they've encountered a God who remembers them instead of forgetting them, who affirms them instead of insulting them, and who embraces them instead of forsaking them. And when, when you're encountered with a God like that, nothing else matters. Because God has proven to us that we are his pearl of greatest price, he then becomes our pearl of greatest price. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Philippians 3, 8-9. Those words are the words of an obedient rebel. And I wonder whether I'm such a person. Could I say these words? And I wonder, could you? Could you? 